Our second text for this Lord's Day is a very familiar passage on this Pentecost. It is Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse uh, 1 and reading through verse 21. Again, I invite you to grab your Bibles, turn and follow along as I read. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language, utterly amazed. They asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. All praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We are, uh, once again, taking a brief pause in our study of the Gospel according to John to reflect for just a few minutes this morning upon a key moment in the story of redemption, that being the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. As we know, the Holy Spirit's arrival was not a complete surprise. The disciples knew that The Spirit was coming because Jesus had promised that to be so, to the degree that the disciples were told, were ordered, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And so they had a sense that the Spirit's arrival would be imminent, although they did not have an exact date, nor did they have any idea of the magnitude 
of what the Spirit's arrival would mean. And so when the Spirit finally arrived, these 120 gathered disciples of Jesus must have been as surprised as anyone as to the enormity of the sound of this mighty rushing wind, as well as the visual display of the tongues of fire that hovered and rested upon each one of them, and then the foreign words they began to emit with their own tongues, proclaiming the mighty works of God. Most of us, I'm sure, have had an experience or two of a language barrier with someone, and we all know the frustration that comes with our inability to make our own thoughts known to the other, as well as comprehending what is being said to us. But imagine the confusion that accompanied this moment when the words that every disciple was hearing was in their own voice, yet was indecipherable by them. But what a marvelous, miraculous work of God this was, displaying God's desire to reach people of every tongue, of every nation, and of every race. When man was at his delusional worst, back in Genesis chapter 11, believing that he had it within his power to build a mighty city with a tower that would reach into the heavens, out of his abundant grace, God confused their language such that their misguided path to heaven was frustrated beyond repair. But now, here in Jerusalem, God is overcoming that language barrier so that people of every language might discover the only path that truly leads to heaven. And that path is one that God alone provides through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. This original audience is composed almost exclusively of Jews who over the centuries, have been scattered from Iran in the east to Rome in the west to North Africa in the south and then to points beyond. This representation of Jews from the diaspora have temporarily returned to Jerusalem for this Feast of Weeks, and to them has been given the privilege of being first to hear the good news proclaimed by those whom Jesus commissioned to proclaim it beginning in Jerusalem and then to Judea and to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, essentially to the points beyond. And those within this crowd who will come to Christ before they leave Jerusalem by the end of this day will then more than likely become the first missionaries as they carry this gospel home with them and tell of the mighty work that God has done in them. Luke, who is the author of Acts, describes the initial message offered in these unfamiliar tongues as being a proclamation of the mighty work of God. Now, we don't know the substance of the praise that was escaping their lips, but it may have been a recitation of the history of God's amazing acts of faithfulness and deliverance to Israel, beginning with Abraham and then to Moses and the Exodus and to Joshua and the conquest and to David and the monarchy and so on, because Israel was known for having amnesia where the mighty acts of God were concerned. We frequently see the psalmists and the prophets reminding Israel of all that God had done on her behalf. 
because she behaved as though she had forgotten it all. And Luke tells us that this audience was amazed and astonished primarily because these multilingual witnesses to God's mighty acts were Galileans. In other words, these visitors had heard others speak their language before, but never had they witnessed something like this, where a small group of Galileans were capable of proclaiming the gospel in so many different dialects. And they want to know, what does this mean? What can possibly explain this meteorological phenomenon, this mighty rushing wind, coupled with this linguistic marvel of undereducated Galileans speaking simultaneously in flawless dialects that is a litany of praise to God for all that He has done? What does this mean? Now this is not only a question for them, this is a question for all people of every age. Because the coming of the Spirit has brought about a substantial change to this world that God loves and is in the process of redeeming. Peter's answer to their question is to point to the prophecy of Joel. And he indicates that what they have observed is a fulfillment of that prophecy which God promised long before. It is the anointing of God's own Spirit, not simply upon one prophet, but upon all of God's sons and daughters in a way that is revelatory and empowering. It will no longer be that the land will have an Elijah or an Isaiah or a Jeremiah in her midst, but there will be a multitude of men and women, young and old, slave and free, upon whom the Spirit has fallen and has given them a clear understanding of what God has done and is doing in the world. The purpose for this is so that the mighty acts of God can be carried throughout the world year after year after year in order that all those who belong to the Good Shepherd might be reached with this proclamation and the Spirit will use that proclamation to engender new life in those with ears to hear. So the child of God who works in the crisis pregnancy center or the child of God who manages a small business, or the child of God who is in the medical field, or the child of God who drives a bus, or works in a retirement home, or teaches third graders, or is a state representative, or whatever the calling may be, recognizes that they have been empowered by the Spirit of God to not only fulfill their calling to work and be productive, but to do so in a way that bears witness to the mighty works of God. Beloved, I know that I have asked this of you before, but I want you to think once again about the person who first bore witness to you in such a way that the gospel suddenly began to make sense. They essentially spoke your language. And the Spirit of God lifted the veil and opened your eyes and you saw Jesus clearly. And you came to faith in Him alone. That person may have been a minister, but in all likelihood it was not. It is far more common for people to think of a parent or a Sunday school teacher or a co-worker or a close friend or a college roommate or someone else entirely. And this is why the gospel is so powerful. 
It isn't because it is proclaimed by overly educated professionals. It is because it is proclaimed by ordinary Galileans who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And when that happens, people want to know, what does this mean? How is it that you, a car mechanic, have scripture placards hanging in your garage? How is it that you, a house painter, talk about Jesus like he's still alive? I will tell you that there was a moment when my own father was wondering if God was calling him to go into the ministry. And after much prayer and reflection, the Lord convinced him that what he wanted him to do was to be a Christian businessman who specialized in the grocery business. And wherever he went, he realized that he had an invisible pulpit that allowed him to speak to people all the time about Jesus. People who more than likely would never set foot in a church. I will tell you that there was more than one hitchhiker who got out of my dad's car having listened to a presentation of the mighty works of God in Christ. Now there's a captive audience. It's hard to walk out on that sermon when you're flying down the road at 65 miles an hour. But I want to suggest to you that this is the primary means by which the Spirit of God spreads the gospel throughout the world. God has equipped ordinary Galileans with His very own Spirit, providing them with the necessary courage and words and opportunities to bear witness to Christ. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. In the same way that an ordinary Galilean bore witness to you and the Spirit opened your eyes to see, so the Spirit is superintending that same process over and over again, using each new generation to step forward and bear witness to Christ. Now this process gets frustrated when we fail to remember the mighty work of God that reached us. And we then fail to obey Christ who sends us out. When we worked our way through the book of Acts some years ago now, you may recall that the church that sprouted up in Jerusalem began to get comfortable and settled and decided to put down roots contrary to Christ's command to go, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea but then to reach Samaria and then the greater world and the points beyond. Now, they did finally go, but only after God sent persecution, the kind that resulted in the arrest of Christians and the death of Stephen in chapter 7 and then the beheading of James by King Herod in chapter 12. But I want you to notice that Luke specifically notes in verse 55 of chapter 7, that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. God did not abandon him. God filled him with the Holy Spirit so that he might proclaim the mighty works of God to people who were violently opposed to his message, but with love and grace and deep conviction. Stephen bore witness to the resurrected Christ, knowing that people all around were picking up stones to put him to death. But you see, his death was simply the beginning 
of a great persecution of the church in Jerusalem. And then it says of these Christians, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. But as we know, that persecution followed them for a time, and so they were driven further still to the points beyond. And as a result, Christ's kingdom grew all the more. His kingdom is growing still. But the challenges are still the same. Churches like ours get planted and those who dwell within her walls get comfortable and it is not long before we do not see the need to go. We begin to enjoy what we perceive to be the safety of these confines. And we turn inward and we stop envisioning the command to go. What does that look like? What does that mean? Now it may not mean that or it may not be that we are commanded to go to some faraway place, although that might happen for some. We learned at our presbytery meeting yesterday that there are 23 missionaries within the current boundary of our presbytery that have been called to distant places out of the churches that they represent. That may not be God's call to you, but God has called you to go. It may be that he calls you to go on the next summer mission trip from here. Or maybe he's just calling you to to go to VBS this year and witness to a child. Maybe his call to you is to go to the Roanoke Rescue Mission and serve those who pass through the food line or to volunteer at the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center. Maybe the call is to become a leader in our own children's worship center or to start a new Bible study with the people from your work. I don't know the shape of the call that Christ will give to you, but I do know that He is calling you to go because He calls every one of His children to go and to bear witness to His mighty works. The Spirit fell on every one of those disciples gathered together on that first Pentecost. Beloved, we are able to go Because if you are a true disciple of Christ, then His Spirit dwells within you, equipping you to go. But we're also able to go because there were those before us who obeyed that same call to go. You have in your bulletin today a brief history of those who went before us in this place. But before them, there were those who, because of persecution, got on a boat to cross a stormy Atlantic Ocean, to come to this land. And then they went some more, carving a road that came to be known as the Great Wagon Road that went from Philadelphia down through the Appalachian Valley, through Big Lick, onto Knoxville, Tennessee. And there were some who then carved a road, a, a subsidiary of that, that went south from here to Martinsville, through North Carolina, South Carolina, all the way to Augusta, Georgia. Because God had a special golf course in mind one day. That may just be the gospel according to Bob. I don't know. But everywhere those believers went, they carried the gospel. And they told others about the mighty works of God. For 170 years, 
God has blessed this congregation and has most recently brought us into a new land. Although we did not have to move to get there. But in this new land that we refer to as the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, there is a cultural norm, an expectation that we are a people that are to go and bear witness. I don't know what the next 170 years looks like for this congregation, but I do know that if we do not embrace Christ's command to go and tell, then our very survival as a congregation is in doubt. We must open our lips and begin to utter the message that God has done mighty things through His Son creating a path that leads to fellowship with Him and ultimately to an eternity in His presence. Let me invite you to ponder that even as we come to the table today and as we pause now for prayer. Would you pray with me, please?